Let's pray. Father, we are thankful, we are grateful to be able to gather uh, and have the freedoms to gather and to worship you, freedom of conscience, freedom of religion. We pray uh, for those this morning in Virginia Beach that are grieving, grieving the loss of people they love. Pray for a community that's rent asunder, wondering, you know, how can this happen to us and how and why would it happen here? Pray, Father, and as the community picks up pieces that somehow, some way in this, you would do what for anyone else would be impossible, and that is to make some kind of good, some kind of redemptive things happen out of this evil that has taken place. Would you, Father, overcome the kingdom of darkness with your kingdom of light? And now, Father, uh, it, it's, again, such a privilege to worship you and and we would ask that you would speak to us, that we would hear from you as we look at your word and as we continue in our study on the Sermon on the Mount and guide us, teach us, change us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen? Well, we want to look this morning at one of the more controversial and often misunderstood statements of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Jesus made this statement. He said, enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it, but small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. The uh, picture of a narrow gate touches on a really deep concern in our culture that a lot of thoughtful people have around the subject of religion, and more specifically, around the subject of Christianity. Uh, and the concern sort of goes like this. This is the line of thinking or the line of thought that gets expressed often, and it goes like this. Christianity calls certain beliefs and certain behaviors wrong, immoral. And therefore, Christianity impinges on human freedom by telling people what they must think or what they must do or what they should not do. And furthermore, Christians believe they know something they call absolute truth. Therefore, they believe that people who disagree with them are wrong, and not just wrong, but are actually going to be judged by God or condemned by God. Now, again, lots of folks are concerned about this today, uh, but this isn't a new concern. The French Enlightenment philosopher uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau wrote these words uh, several centuries back, he said, it is impossible to live at peace with those we regard as damned. What he was driving at was that you can't have a government that has a religion. You've got to separate these two because if you have a government with a religion, it will always persecute people who do not adopt that religion. Now, Christians, he would say, and people still today say, Christians must be intolerant to atheists, they must be intolerant to agnostics. They must be intolerant towards people of other religions, and not even other religions, but just different kinds of Christians, Catholics versus Protestants, uh, liberal Christians versus conservative Christians, Presbyterians versus Baptists, and so on and so forth. And so we are told what humility requires is giving up any claim to exclusive truth. Because if we say nobody can really claim to know what is true, I mean, 
you have your truth and, and I have mine. You can only know what's true for you. Well, then no one is in a position to judge anybody else. You see, there's no absolute truth. And it is often thought that the narrow gate or the narrow way that Jesus mentions here in our text actually leads to narrow-mindedness, uh, to judgmental kinds of thinking, to unthinking, irrational, blindly compliant, intolerant, bigoted ways of thinking. That's the way the argument goes. That's the logic behind it. And of course, it is very true that many of us who call ourselves Christians are often guilty of such things, if we're telling the truth. But that's not because of Jesus' teaching. It's rather in spite of it. It's because of brokenness in here. It's because of brokenness in us, sin in us. Now, here's what's interesting. If you examine the life and the teachings of Jesus, you'll notice what looks like to our culture a very strange paradox. On the one hand, Jesus makes these statements that are outrageously, even staggeringly exclusive in our eyes. I mean, for example, one time he prayed this prayer. He said, now this is eternal life. Really? Okay, Jesus, I'd like to know. What, what are you talking about? What is eternal life? Well, Jesus says that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, in other words, himself, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And you kind of go, wow, okay, that's, whew, that's pretty exclusive. Jesus is saying there is one God, only one true God. So apparently other gods are false, and this God is the one, Jesus says, who sent him. And having eternal life, something everybody, of course, would want, is knowing that God and the one he sent, Jesus Christ. Another time, uh, Jesus famously said this. He said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And wow, wow, that is exclusive. Jesus is not wishy-washy here. He did not present his teachings as optional suggestions for a better life. I mean, he claimed to know how things really are in the universe, he claimed to know the truth. He claimed to be the truth. He claimed that this truth mattered more than anything else in the world. And yet, this man who made claims that were staggeringly exclusive pursued relational connections relentlessly with people who disagreed with him. Jesus was anything but intolerant. Read his life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. Uh, he deliberately touched an untouchable leper several times. Nobody else was going to touch them. Nobody else wanted anything to do with a leper. Jesus sought them out and even embraced them. Jesus allowed a known prostitute to bathe his feet in her tears and use her hair to wipe his feet. Nobody else would do something like that. Not in public. Jesus did. Jesus commended a hated Roman centurion, somebody that everybody knew they were supposed to hate. If you were a Jew, you hated the Romans, let alone a Roman soldier. Jesus partied with tax collectors. And as far as we know, he never became one, but he partied with them. He interacted with them, even made one of them one of his closest 
disciples in the inner circle of 12. One time uh, in Luke chapter 17, uh, we have this story. Jesus was approached uh, by a group of 10 lepers. Some of the lepers were Jewish. At least one of them was a Samaritan. And we're told that Jesus heals all 10 of them. And then he tells us, or he tells them, he says, go show yourselves to the priests, to the priests. Now, the reason for being sent to or going to tell a priest about your healing was that a priest was the one person who could give a leper a clean bill of health and thus allow them back into the routines of society. Now, in Luke 17, we would expect Jesus, after healing this group of 10 lepers, to say, now go show yourself to the nearest priest, singular, not plural. Why does he use the plural here? Well, we don't know for sure. But, but here would be my best guess. I think it's because Jewish lepers, the Jewish lepers that Jesus had healed, would of course be expected to go to their priests, right? And the Samaritan leper would be expected to go to his Samaritan priest. In other words, Jesus is not saying, now that I have healed you, you must all convert to my religion. Uh, he enters into a healing relationship with an unclean, unorthodox, non-Jewish leper and then actually sends him to his own Samaritan priest to be pronounced clean. Now, if this interpretation is right, uh, it, it's almost like Jesus isn't in any hurry to get this guy out of the Samaritan cult that he's a part of. It's almost like Jesus knows God is at work in the life of this individual who's just been healed, and, and God, Jesus is going to let God work his full course in the life of this ex-leper. And so he lets this Samaritan leper wrestle with the fact that a Jewish rabbi, who should have had nothing to do with him on two levels, one, he's a leper, two, he is a Samaritan, he's got to wrestle now with the fact that he was healed by a Jewish Rabbi, And so we're left kind of wondering at this point, what's this Samaritan ex-leper going to do? And, and Luke tells us, tells us exactly what he does. It says he threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. And he was a Samaritan. And Jesus asked, we're not all 10 cleansed? Where are the other nine? Has no one returned to give praise to God except this foreigner? And then he said to him, rise and go. Your faith has made you well. It's a really interesting encounter. Um, It's like the narrower Jesus gets in his personal devotion to the Father, the more tolerant and the more patient he is with people who disagree with him. How interesting is that? He just keeps loving. He keeps healing. He keeps reaching out to them, you see. Now, Ironically, Jesus' followers often missed this dynamic in Jesus as they observed him and how he lived, and in fact, still do. We have this same problem. Uh, There's a group called the Barna Group. Uh, It's an outfit that does a lot of research around faith and practices of faith in our day. And they found that in the American culture, it's becoming increasingly splintered and divided around faith kinds of issue. In fact, they found that most Americans indicate that they think it would be difficult to have a natural, normal conversation. That's the language of the research. A natural, normal conversation with people who are different than them. 
People who, for example, are in a minority group, different from them. People, for example, who might be Muslim or people who might be atheists or they might be Mormons or they might be evangelicals or they might be a a member of the LGBTQ community. And in their research, the Barna Group discovered that the group that has the hardest time having natural and normal conversations with minority groups different from them is evangelical Christians. That's very interesting. That makes me go, hmm, isn't that, isn't that ironic? Because contrast that with the fact that the longest conversation recorded in the Bible between Jesus and anyone else is the conversation that Jesus has with a pagan or a cultic Samaritan woman. On many different levels there, it's very abnormal that Jesus would be talking to this individual. First, she's a woman. He's a man. That was uncommon in that culture for conversations to be struck up in public between two people. Well, she's a woman. She's a woman who's been married five times and is currently living with another man. This is a woman no ordinary rabbi would likely even go near, let alone talk to her. But Jesus did. The point is this. When you look at Jesus and his followers today, according to research, the followers of the most inclusive man in human history have become the most excluding people in American history. How odd is that? How odd is that? It's interesting. We can be quite lax in our devotion to God. Uh, you know, at church, yeah, I'll go if I feel like it. Read the Bible, I don't know. That sounds like a drudge. Pray, oh, that's way too hard. We can become quite lax in our devotion to God, but relentlessly narrow-minded in our relationships and in our attitudes towards people. Wow. And yet Jesus, who was relentlessly narrow in his devotion to God, And in his practices that kept that relationship with God healthy and flourishing, he could be relentlessly narrow in his devotion to God, but he was outrageously patient and tolerant and gracious in his relationships with broken people, in his relationship with people like you or people like me. Why is that, do you think? Uh, You feel any tension here? Why was he that way? Uh, Was Jesus just inconsistent? Was he just a nice guy but not a very clear thinker? Uh, Some people actually make the claim that the claims of Jesus' authority and religious convictions like I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, claims like that were never really made by Jesus. They were in fact made by people who followed Jesus, people like perhaps the Apostle Paul or others even later, and then those claims were retrofitted reinserted back into the story about Jesus. Some people make that claim. Is that what happened? You know, some people want to say that Jesus was not that clear about his own identity, not that clear about this, these exclusive claims that we find him making in the Gospels. But to say that, you have to understand, you have to essentially dismiss all of the Gospels, all four of them as myth and legend written by people who walked the earth years after Jesus walked the earth, written by people with a massive agenda, a power agenda of their own. And here's the thing, and you could build a whole series of messages around this, but here's the bottom line. Both scholarship and history roundly refute that claim, period. You just can't make that claim with any integrity. 
So, you know, maybe there's another explanation. Well, yeah, maybe, maybe the truth that Jesus taught actually explains the life that Jesus lived. Maybe the possibility of, of finding deep truth, holding on to it tightly and dearly, and offering bold or broad tolerance are not mutually incompatible, but in fact, mutually inextricable. You can't separate them. This is really an important topic for our day and in our culture for people who follow Jesus or are people who, who are thinking about following Jesus. You, you will notice when you think about the topic of tolerance or when you think about the topic of narrow-mindedness, when we go through the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus does not command tolerance. He never says, be thou tolerant. Why is that? Well, I think it might be because tolerance has a kind of minimalist quality to it. Tolerance is all about putting up with something or putting up with someone. And that's not exactly what Jesus calls us to, is it? When Holly and I got married, Holly did not say, I promise to tolerate you from this day forward. For richer, for poorer, for better, for worse, in sickness and in health, to put up with and tolerate you until death does liberate me. <laughs> That's not what she promised. It, it's the same way for parents. Think about this. Parents, think about the times when your kids are anything but lovable. There are those times, am I right? Well, what do you do? Well, you don't tolerate them. You actually love them. Warts and all. That's almost a definition of what parenting really is. You love them through it all. Now, people are not made, you understand, to be tolerated. God did not make human beings just to be tolerated. People are made by God to be celebrated. They are made by God to be loved. This is something we all know. This is something we all feel. Now, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus does not say, tolerate your enemies. He doesn't say, put up with those who persecute you, let alone the people who just think differently than you. If you've been with us through this series in the months prior, you know uh, all about this. Jesus doesn't say, if you're offering your gift at an altar and you remember that your brother or your sister has something against you and you don't like them and you don't like how they believe or things that they do, well, you just need to tolerate them. Jesus does not say that. Jesus does not say if someone forces you to go with them one mile, just put up with it. Get it over with. You see, tolerance is a good thing as far as it goes. But that's the problem. It simply doesn't go far enough. Tolerance will go one mile. It absolutely will not go two. Tolerance is, of course, better than intolerance, but tolerance is a very, very, very low bar. You can tolerate somebody without loving them at all, but you can't love somebody without tolerating them. Jesus, as we have seen throughout the Sermon on the Mount, is he's inviting us into his kingdom, into this place of spiritual reality, into a place where God's will is going to be done, into a place where the heart of God is made evident through the people living in his kingdom. And the primary law in the kingdom of God is the law of love, and that's for one very simple reason. That is because God himself is love. 
And so therefore, Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself. He even says, love your enemy. So question, how are you doing at that? Is that going well for you? I take it by the silence, it's a little troubling, maybe. Yeah, it's hard to love your enemies, let alone your neighbor. You see, love certainly includes the virtue of tolerance, absolutely. But actually, it includes much more than tolerance. Jesus doesn't call us to tolerate our neighbor. He actually calls us to care about them. And not just care about them, but find ways to serve them. That's part of what loving is all about. Now, all of this conversation, all of the debate that takes place in our culture today, all of this talk about tolerance um, really begs a question. It begs the question of this. Why should we even or ever practice tolerance? Why? It's the big why question. Tolerance itself, you see, which is, as I said, talked a lot about today, actually requires some kind of foundation. If it's going to be an enduring virtue, it needs a rationale. It needs something upon which to stand. Very often in our day, it's claimed that people who, like us, Christians, who say that we believe in an absolute truth, the claim is that we are full of hatred. Hatred which leads to things like division and fighting and wars. So, you know, what's needed is the practice, therefore, of charity uh, and uh, to divest ourselves uh, of any belief that would be something that, that claims to be absolute truth. And so, therefore, you see, we need tolerance. We need acceptance. We need openness to all ideas. But here's the problem with that kind of thinking. The claim that all people are equal The claim that all people have dignity, that all people are deserving of our tolerance, that claim in itself is a moral and spiritual belief. So where does that belief come from? What is that belief built on? The idea that all people have dignity and deserve tolerance, that is actually a claim to absolute truth. And if you undermine it by saying there is no such thing as an absolute truth, you end up eroding the very ground on which the practice of tolerance stands. In other words, the cure for hatred and intolerance, which are, we agree, uh, horrible sins, when those things manifest themselves in a public sector, they're usually pretty awful. These are sins which do often infect the church as much as any other institution, I would say. Not more so necessarily, but certainly as much. Why? Well, because there's people in a church just like every other institution. But the cure for hatred and intolerance is not embracing uncertainty about what is right and what is wrong or what is true or what is in error. It's not saying we can't know truth. You know, you have your truth, I have mine. The cure is that we know the truth and we live in the truth with humility. With humility. You see, you can be truthful and humble. That is possible. Jesus is proof. Truth with humility. Just like it's very possible to be uncertain. No, you can't know what's right. You can't know what's wrong. There's no such thing as absolute truth. Just like it's possible to be uncertain and very arrogant. Have you ever known anybody like this? I think of somebody like Daniel Dawkins, Christopher Hitchens, who's now deceased, and Other neo-atheists, I would put them in this category. They're very uncertain and they're very arrogant. In fact, I could kind of distill down their message and say the essence of their message is that absolute truth cannot be known and of this I am certain. 
Yeah, a little contradiction going on there. Jesus taught that the only foundation for things like tolerance of people who are different than you or love for your enemies, the only foundation for those kinds of things is God. The only foundation is his kingdom. You see, people should be prized because they are loved by God. People's beliefs should be tolerated because God has made them to be free to believe all kinds of stupid wrong things. We all believe lots of stupid things. In fact, we're so stupid, we don't know what stupid things we believe. We will find out someday. But, you know, they, there are people out there that believe lots of stupid things, and there are people in here, all of us included, who believe lots of stupid things. God gave us all a little kingdom where we exercise dominion. We've talked a lot about this. This is a recurring theme in the Sermon on the Mount. There's a Yale professor by the name of Miroslav Volv, and uh, he said, he wrote these words. He says, it's no accident that the first government to actually separate church and state and create religious freedom was founded in the colony of Rhode Island in the 1600s by a Baptist minister by the name of Roger Williams. So in the 1600s, Roger Williams begins this colony, and it's a colony that attempted to separate church and state. And at that point in time, understand, that was quite a social experiment because there were really no societies on earth that tried to separate religion, freedom of conscience, freedom of religion from the government itself. Uh, whatever the government said the religion was going to be, that was the religion. And if you practiced a different one, you were generally on the receiving end of some bad stuff. But Roger Williams, a devout Baptist, a devout follower of Jesus, came to the conclusion it needed to be different. And as it turns out, his social experiment became the experiment which convinced our founding fathers, the founding fathers of this country, to create a government with separation of freedom from conscience and government, you know, freedom of religion and government. Uh, This is something Roger Williams himself wrote. He said, it is the will and the command of God that since the coming of his son, the Lord Jesus, a permission of the most paganish Jewish, Turkish, or anti-Christian consciences and worships be granted to all men in all nations and countries. And they are only to be fought with that sword which is only in soul matters able to conquer, namely the sword of God's spirit, the word of God. So you see, understand, Roger Williams didn't give up the battle or the fight for truth. He just very clearly understood that this is a fight that takes place in conversation and debate. It's not a fight to have with a real sword. It's a fight or a conversation to have where you have truth and humility. Conversation. Allow God to work. In other words, you don't coerce somebody's worship at the point of a physical sword or for that matter with a legislator's pen because these ideas of freedom, freedom of worship, freedom of conscience don't just appear out of thin air. Roger Williams believed in truth and humility. He believed every human being is created equal and free in God's sight. And because of that forced worship, he understood, is not really worship at all. You can't just legislate it. In Roger Williams, we see this odd paradox that is precisely the narrowness of devotion to God. He wasn't going to compromise his beliefs about God, but those beliefs led to this very broad-mindedness 
in the government and in the society that he founded. All of that now brings us to the narrow gate that Jesus is talking about here in our text. You see, the narrow gate is not at all about narrow-mindedness. The narrow gate is not even exactly, doesn't even have anything to do with, with doctrinal, uh, doctrinal correctness, although they're not unrelated. It's just not specifically about doctrinal correctness. It's not being right and having everybody else be wrong. That's not what the narrow gate is about. The narrow gate is not about religious intolerance. The narrow gate is simply about following Jesus. It's doing what Jesus tells us to do. The narrow gate is all about obedience, obeying Jesus. Now, that's another word that in our day and age is very messed up and misunderstood, this idea of obedience. Obeying is not a straight jacket, you understand. Obeying is the path toward joy. Obeying is a path towards creativity. Obeying is a path towards the discovery of deeper and deeper and more and more rich truth. Obedience is not compulsory in the church. Have you noticed that we haven't assigned someone to you who goes home with you and lives in your house and watches you and reports back? Amen, thank God, right? We'd all suffer if that was going on. Obedience is not compulsory in the kingdom of Jesus. It's not something that a follower is made to do. It's not something that a follower of Jesus does with gritted teeth and anger and resentment. Obedience is following the one who has thoroughly mastered life, thoroughly mastered death, thoroughly mastered truth, thoroughly mastered joy. It's following the one who knows, knows it all, you see. So obeying him in all things, that's the narrow gate that Jesus is talking about. The broad gate, on the other hand, is just doing anything other than that. The broad gate is not really listening to Jesus, not putting his teachings into practice, doing your own thing, doing what you think is best without thinking about what he says is best. It's believing your own truth. And here's the deal. It is only in the narrow way or the narrow gate that we find freedom and joy. That's what Jesus is saying. Jesus puts it like this. He says, if you hold to my teachings, the idea of holding to is the idea of obeying. If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. I'll just say this. Uh, there are a lot of us in churches that say, yes, I'm a follower of Jesus, but we make not a very serious attempt to follow him. Um, but Jesus says, if you hold to my teaching, that's the key. You are really my disciples. And then you will know the truth, and the truth, he says, will set you free. That's where freedom is. Now, those words, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free, they are inscribed on more university campuses in our country than any other saying. But they don't often include the prior phrase, if you hold to my teaching. If you obey my teachings, then you are really my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Jesus says, if you obey. In our day, we generally think that freedom is the opposite of having to obey anything, don't we? We usually think of freedom as just the absence of any kind of restriction on me whatsoever. Turns out that's just not true, not right, never has been, never will be. 
When I was a child, now I don't actually remember this, but this was a story my mom used to tell. So I, I believe her. I mean, I, you know, it must have happened, but, but I don't actually remember it. We had this pet goldfish, apparently, and it lived in one of those little goldfish bowls. And I guess I found a way to climb up on whatever that was on and dig down in there and get it out. And I, I don't know, I guess I threw it on the floor or on the table or something like that. And so I had liberated the fish. I had, I had given it its freedom. Now it had fresh air to breathe and just all the freedom you could possibly want. What do you think happened to that fish? Yeah, dead. Not a good thing. You see, in order to be free and to live as a fish, the fish must be restricted to water. That's a silly illustration, I know, but I hope it makes the point. See, it's the fish's nature. It's in the fish's best interest to be restricted to water. Freedom is not the absence of restraint. It's not the absence of restrictions. Freedom is finding the right restrictions. The greatest freedom comes from knowing what you were made for. And this is why so many people in our country, in our neighborhoods, in our places of work, they, they, they think they're striving for freedom, but they're actually moving further and further into bondage and not understanding who they are and why they were made and why they are here and where they can go. The greatest freedom comes from knowing what you were made for. And for us, that means swimming in the moral and the spiritual reality of God and his kingdom. I've said this a number of times this year. Those are the two most real things ever was and ever will be, God and his kingdom. And that is what my little nature and your little nature were literally made for. So if you obey the teachings of Jesus, he says, you are really my disciples, and then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Like water makes a fish free. Same thing. The question that Jesus is asking relentlessly from this point in the Sermon on the Mount all the way to the end, the question he is asking over and over and over and over of his listeners is this, whose disciple will you be? That's the question. Guaranteed, you are someone's disciple. Guaranteed. You see, the people that you hang out with, they are discipling you. The people that you look up to, they are discipling you. The people that you want to be like, they are discipling you, for better or for worse, on purpose or not. For sure, you are somebody's disciple. You are learning to do life from somebody. Guaranteed. To be somebody's disciple means that you choose to be with them. You learn from them. You choose, knowingly or unknowingly, to be like them. So, question, how is that working for you? Are you hanging out with the right people? Now, don't misunderstand me. <laughs> One of the things I'm not saying is I am not saying don't be friends with and don't hang out with people who don't know Jesus. Not saying that. Absolutely, uh, in fact, I would encourage you Make friends of people who don't know Jesus. Hang out with people who don't know Jesus. But don't necessarily in all things become like them. Like I said earlier, I don't think Jesus, although he hung out with tax collectors, ever became one, right? No, he influenced them. More importantly, what I'm driving at is the people with whom you spend the most time, the people that you allow in to speak into your soul, into your heart, 
Who are those people? And are they moving you in the direction Jesus would want you to move in? Now, here's how you can actually answer that question. You can ask yourself, am I growing in wisdom? Am I growing in truth? As I examine myself, am I growing in humility? Is there a growth in freedom from bondage to sin? The things that, the thoughts and the things that I do that I know, this, they do not delight God. Am I experiencing increased freedom from those things or am I more in bondage to them? Uh, am I growing in love? Am I growing in joy? Because you see, understand, when Jesus talks about the narrow way versus the broad way, he's just talking about the way life is. There are two ways. And when you boil it all down, there's really only two. Uh, It has nothing to do with narrow-mindedness. It has nothing to do with intolerance. It has nothing to do with judgmentalism. It has everything to do with who you follow. And Jesus says, if you want freedom, if you want joy, if you want truth, if you want to flourish, Jesus says, follow me. Do what I do. Live the way I live. The Broadway, on the other hand, is just doing everything else, doing whatever you feel like doing, doing what everybody else does. And Jesus says that many take that broad road. Only a few apparently take the narrow The broad road is the default mode of all fallen, sinful human beings. It's our default mode, the broad way. And the truly remarkable thing to me is how incredibly patient and humble Jesus is with my foolishness and my stupidity and my sin. He's really patient. The apostle Peter, you all know a little bit about the story of Peter's life, perhaps, you know, he was the disciple when they were all gathered together in the upper room and they were actually, Jesus was instituting the sacrament, which we today call the Lord's Supper. And he informed the disciples that very soon all of them were going to abandon him. All of them were going to deny him. All of them were. (laughs) And Peter, you know, speaks up and says, not me. I don't know what these turkeys are going to do. But I will not do that, Jesus, cock-a-doodle-doo, right? (laughs) And then not long after, he denies Jesus, even knowing Jesus, even curses in the process, denies knowing Jesus at all. Cock-a-doodle-doo, yeah. Well, it's that same Peter who writes these words, words that I think he knows or knew something about, right? He says, God is patient with you. This is a guy who knew something about the patience of God with him. You remember how that the whole thing spun out? After Peter had denied Jesus, Peter was pretty sure his career as a disciple was over, done. When you read the Gospel of John, you get to the end of that, that book, chapter 21, Jesus is going after Peter. Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Peter says, God is patient with you. Not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Peter can write that and mean that and know that to be true because he was on the receiving end of it. You know, our sinful default mode is just to kind of drift through life. Doing whatever, 
not thinking about important issues, not answering important questions, not having Jesus' priorities, just doing what we see others doing. Jesus, in this text, is actually very graciously and lovingly challenging that way of living. Jesus challenges us to become his disciples. So, you know, the question, obvious one is, have you done that? Have you gone through the narrow gate? How do you do that? Well, by faith, by believing, by trusting, and then by doing, you see. Are you on the narrow road or, or have you gotten off the narrow road? This happens to people who follow Jesus that we quickly get off the narrow road and we're out in the weeds somewhere. Maybe that's you. Uh, we, we each have to answer this question. Where, where am I? Have I gone through the narrow gate? Am I on the narrow road? Am I making my life about following Jesus? That's a decision we each need and have to make. This is crucial. This is, this is really why we are here as a church, to tell people about Jesus, that, that he is the way, that he is the truth, that he is the life, that he's wonderful, that he's gracious, that he's good, that he's God. And uh, and then we ask people to decide, what do you believe about Jesus? There's a matter of some urgency here. According to Jesus, there's an awful lot at stake. The broad road, he says, leads to destruction. Quite honestly, you can look around and see people destroying their lives left and right. Quite honestly, you can look in our own lives, right? And at the times when we're just systematically destroying our own lives because we're not in the narrow way. The broad road leads to destruction, says Jesus, and the narrow gate leads to life. When you go through the narrow gate, you don't do it alone. That's the other interesting thing. You don't do it alone. Uh, You do it with the Holy Spirit. You do it with the supernatural working of God's Spirit alive in you so that in your prayers, in your reading of the Bible, in your interactions with other Christians, the Holy Spirit uses all of those things to help you be in the narrow way and to help you grow while you're there so that you live in truth and humility, you see. Presence of Jesus will be with you every moment on the narrow way. Out there on the Broadway, there's some truth to the fact that you're out there on your own. And the good news about Jesus is he goes and gets us from there oftentimes. Today, if you're thinking about becoming a disciple of Jesus, I would just say to you, do it. Do it. Listen to his voice. Respond to his call. And I would say to you, if you are a follower of Jesus, a follower of Jesus, but you find yourself out in the weeds somewhere and you're off the narrow way, you're not practicing or doing life with people who influence you to be more like Jesus. Well, my my challenge, my plea with you would be get back on the narrow way. It's simply the best way. The narrow way is all about your devotion to him. You know, we need to be utterly narrow in our devotion to him, the practices which help us to grow in our love for him. And at the same time, we need to be incredibly broad in our interactions, in our acceptance, in our love, in our patience, in our tolerance towards people who are different than us. That's the challenge. Truth and humility, both at the same time. That's Jesus' challenge for us.
Pray with me. Heavenly Father, uh, I pray particularly that you would help us to understand these words of Jesus because honestly, Lord, these words are odd to our ears. I pray for me, I pray for everybody listening who has this desire, God, that we would want Jesus in his life, that we would prize the narrow gate, the narrow way above all else, and that we would see and that we would understand it is the path of life. It is the path toward freedom. It's your path, Jesus. And forgive us, God, and help us not to think ourselves better than others. Help us not to judge others. Help us to be loving and patient with people who don't know you, people who think very differently than we think, people who may even dislike, may even hate us, may even seek to limit or take our freedoms away. Give us opportunities to demonstrate and to share your love for them. This we ask in Jesus' name, amen.